Judging Biden in Congress, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. President Biden's first two years with a narrow Democratic Congress brought big ambitions and substantial new policy. As we now shift to a Republican House, how should we put Biden's first two years in context? And how should that impact our look ahead to policymaking under divided government? What does this moment say about the state of the Democratic and Republican parties? This week, I talked to Casey Dominguez of the University of San Diego. Her work has covered presidential honeymoons, judging presidents on their own terms, and how parties decide primary elections. She's a big-picture thinker about the state of each political party and the role of political science in understanding current events. I think you'll enjoy our wide-ranging conversation. So uh, the Biden presidency uh, began with this kind of high level of expectation where people were talking even about uh, FDR comparisons with the new Democratic majority. Then kind of last year at this time, uh, Build Back Better had failed. And so people were talking about it being a huge lost opportunity. And now we're back almost to the high point of expectations where people are saying a whole lot was accomplished in, in two years. So how... Uh, typical is that uh, pattern of expectations uh, and reaction, uh, and how should we be judging uh, the Biden presidency thus far? So, you know, I'll I'll give my my favorite usual caveat here, and that is that what often gets sort of written down as as presidential achievements are actually joint achievements by the president and the Congress. Um, and Biden, to the degree that he's been that we can call his presidency a successful legislative presidency. Um, we probably have to think about the Democratic Party and how the Democratic Party has been able to be pretty unified about a broad range of issues. Um, And that's that's more or less um, the successes that Biden's been able to achieve in office or that, you know, people get a tribute to Biden. Um, And, you know, looking back over two years, I think you can say that those were a very two there was a it was a very productive Congress. Um, and not productive in terms of, you know, the number of pieces of legislation, but really in terms of the scale of the legislation that got passed and the the harmony between that legislation and what Biden laid out in his inaugural address and in his State of the Union, his first you know message to Congress. Um, you know, if you think about the moment that he was inaugurated and in, in his first couple of months, it's the depth of the pandemic. It's right after January 6th. In his inaugural address, he talks about lowering the partisan temperature in Washington, getting through the pandemic, dealing with systemic racism and climate change. That's kind of what he mentioned in the inaugural address. And then when he gave his first address to Congress, um, he talked about other goals that are that were basically infrastructure, increasing taxes on corporations in order to pay for funding preschool and community college and childcare. Um, protecting various important minority groups in the Democratic Party, including LGBTQ Americans, Asian Americans, violence against women, um, gun reforms, immigration reform, voting rights, um, uh, increasing competition with China. He talked about ending the war in Afghanistan. Like when political scientists sit down to, to look at what is a, what is a, what did a president achieve? We kind of look at, well, what did he, what did he say his priorities were? Um, and a lot of those got passed into law. Uh, a lot of those things that he mentioned in those first couple of months, Congress did pass. Um, they, they did pass uh, laws that increased, that, that set up a bunch of spending to help deal with climate change. Um, they did, 
do some at least some modest actions about prescription drug costs that he had mentioned. Um, and of course, there were things that didn't get didn't get into those bills. Were not able to pass. The Voting Rights Act was not passed. Immigration reform was not passed. Um, Childcare subsidies, free community college, criminal justice reform did not get passed by Congress. Um, and so, you know. It was a very successful couple of years. Um, everything that the Democrats have on their agenda did not get passed into law, but that's an unreasonable expectation for two years with a narrow partisan majority. Um, but I would say that the Democrats and Biden worked all very well together. Um, you know, there was definitely those moments when uh, when a couple of Democrats in the Senate stripped out big pieces of the Democrats' agenda, right? The child care portions of the infrastructure bill were not amenable to Joe Manchin. Um, and, and that's what didn't get achieved. Um, and they couldn't, uh, they couldn't agree to get rid of the filibuster to pass the Voting Rights Act. Beyond that, yeah, it, it stacks up as a pretty successful first couple of years. So presidents uh, often have an arc uh, that, that starts high and gets reduced at uh, some point. And I know you've written on the presidential honeymoon, which um, both... Um, both corresponds to this very specific uh, presidential approval measure and it starting high and and um, going down after the beginning, typically, but also this broader idea that sort of the opening of a presidency is the time to potentially get things done. Um, I know that that might not uh, have actually been the case uh, for a while, uh, but the um, the actual approval did seem to uh, did, did seem to start lower uh, than than most presidencies, but then really take a dive, especially around the Afghanistan withdrawal, and never really recover. So, how does that uh, kind of compare to other presidencies um, in in its arc? Um, and is that something that we should have just said something was going to reduce it further, um, or uh, is that was that really kind of about Afghanistan? Well, in in terms of public approval ratings. Um, the pres presidents usually do come in with higher levels of public approval ratings. And then as they do things, um, some of those things are controversial and those ratings go down. Um, the honeymoon has kind of two, it has a very specific connotation, right? The idea of the honeymoon is um, the people who might otherwise oppose you later give you a break because you're new, because it's, it's a, a fresh start. Um, and at least at least in terms of Congress, that hasn't been true for a while. Um, and increasingly in terms of the public, that's not really true either. There was never a moment when Democrats liked Donald Trump, like they're not not for a second. Um, and uh, that was also not not exactly the case with Obama, but um, certainly throughout the, the later latter parts of the Obama administration, Republicans didn't like anything he did. Um, and that, that partisan polarization in public opinion is more what we're seeing it, with Biden, right? He, he started off having no support from Republicans, um, some support from independents and, and, uh, pretty great support from Democrats. Uh, and, and some of that support from Democrats and independents tailed off as, as, uh, he did things that were, perceived to be uh, inappropriate or controversial. And, and I think the press coverage of the Afghanistan withdrawal, you're right, was that moment when um, it was it was just a, a sustained period of pretty negative coverage. And the public, his, I don't think his public approval ratings have cracked 50% since then, or if so, not for very long. Um, and so in terms of public opinion, I think what we're seeing is just 
what we should expect to see in a more polarized era um, where people are just going to there's there's a conflation between pre- presidential approval ratings and people's partisan identity that is pretty hard to break. And it's those public those presidential approval ratings aren't really telling us as much as they used to. Um, in terms of the the honeymoon with Congress, that's been over for a while. There really used to be such a thing um, as people in the opposition party giving a new president a little bit of a little bit of leeway to you know get started and and um, make some proposals and and take a look at those proposals in good faith. And that's that's been over um, in the certainly in the twenty first century. Uh, we really haven't seen much of that. Um, and so presidents in the 21st century have to rely more on support from their own party in Congress. And that's what Biden did. And um, they should expect increasing amounts of opposition from the other party. And, and that's what Biden in particular has saw, has sorry has seen um, really a lot of opposition, um, even on things that used to be non-controversial, like staffing his own administration, um, staffing the, you know, putting people into the executive branch used to be something that presidents were just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. The, the Senate opposition let them do that. And there's been a lot of, a lot more delay in those kinds of uh, confirmation processes in the Senate than there used to be. Um, and so president, I think presidents aren't getting much of a honeymoon from anybody these days. And Biden probably is following that pattern. So as you say, uh, Republican votes have not really been there for, for Biden in, in Congress. Uh, and even comparing uh, to Obama's major legislative achievements, the, the number of Republican votes are, are going down. Um, but our standards of bipartisanship might be going down <laughs> with them. So we have these um, you know, fairly major uh, bipartisan successes, um, at least uh, bipartisan in the sense that bipartisan Senate groups uh, led uh, their development, uh, like the infrastructure bill uh, and the, the the chips and science uh, bill. Um, so, how should we judge, um, you know, Biden's uh, efforts and Republicans' uh, efforts to uh, try to find uh, common ground, and and what does that mean for the divided government we're about to see? So, it, it's always a little tricky to be able to assess, you know, how much of that is Biden. We don't really know. Uh, we we haven't seen all the biographies and the end of the term books and that kind of thing. So we don't really know how much Biden was on the phones, um, you know, with Republicans and, you know, facilitating that bipartisanship. What we what we can say is that on Democratic Party priorities, Republicans wouldn't give him a single vote. Right. So um, for uh, for uh, Obama, that was, oh, we need to spend some money to deal with this great recession and the banking crisis. And um, no Republicans in the House would give him any votes to deal with that crisis. And similarly, when um, Biden came in, we were still in the middle of the COVID crisis and the Democrats wanted to um, extend unemployment benefits and um, you know, do some other income supports to help people deal with the crisis and also spend on, on uh, and uh, try to get pe- vaccines in people's arms. Um, and the Republicans wouldn't give them any votes for that. Um, and so on those issues that were... Uh, sort of what the Democratic Party wanted to do and like solve a crisis, Republicans weren't supportive. On the issues that they did, that there was bipartisanship, I think it's really interesting that there are issues where Trump was kind of out of line with some Wall Street Republican orthodoxy. So um, in terms of uh, being a little bit more uh, protectionist, um, in about manufacturing and not just being sort of free trade all the time. Um, Trump 
broke with an older Republican norm about that and, and argued for more domestic manufacturing, America first, that kind of thing. Um, he also was antagonistic toward China, at least in his rhetoric. Um, and he talked about infrastructure a lot. Um, and so those were three issues where maybe the Trump presidency had opened up uh, some, it had su supplied Republicans with some information about issues where policy successes might benefit them. And so those, those were issues where they were able to work with Democrats. Um, and Democrats did, you know, reach across the aisle and let, let Republicans, they, they did break up the Build Back Better Act. Um, they did prioritize infrastructure over the Democratic priorities to try to get those bipartisan bills passed. Um, they also, you know, some of the other um, sort of major bipartisan actions were the uh, Electoral Count Reform Act to reform the, the the way that the Electoral College works and the way that those votes are counted to prevent another January 6th. Republicans were on board, at least some of them, with reforming that. Um, the Respect for Marriage Act to preserve LGBTQ plus marriages in case the Supreme Court overturns Ober Obergefell. That was a case where the, the Republicans support it. Not that it's like a major... It, it's a pretty limited bill, um, but Republicans also didn't want to be seen as being anti-gay marriage. And so they wanted to be able to um, maybe uh, be able to indicate their support for that bill. And so, you know, I think it's interesting to look at the places where we see bipartisanship is maybe telling us something about cleavages in the Republican Party. Um, and that's that to the degree that Democrats, that Biden and the Democrats can continue to find some of those places, um, that might be where we might continue to see some bipartisanship going forward. Now, the last government, last uh, divided government uh, Congress under Trump um, was actually surprisingly productive um, by by our normal measures. A lot of major uh, laws uh, were passed, but a ton of them were responsive to events. Uh, so there were five uh, COVID bills. Um, there were uh, lots of disaster relief and things like that. But they did pass by uh, overwhelming bipartisan uh, margins um, in divided government. So is there any hope uh, for the upcoming Congress that anything will uh, stimulate uh, um, uh, major policy, or is there anything that you know that Biden might see as a Republican priority that he he wants to advance? Well, I mean, I think on competition with China, maybe on defense issues, maybe on something like digital privacy or regulating the big tech companies in some way, right? There might be some kinds of avenues for legislation there, but that's those are. We'll have to see. Um, it, it kind of depends on what the House winds up looking like and how how seriously the House is organized around policy. I mean, I think one of the things that we can see from the past is that during divided government, um, we tend to see more investigations, right? And so there's the, the House, the incoming House Republican majority has signaled that it's going to be interested in doing investigations. Um, and history tells us that that happens more during divided government. And so I think we can see that. Um, and so, and, and that can be important, right? Congressional investigations can be important to government oversight um, and maybe not just coming from the House, maybe also coming from the Senate. Um, I think, you know, Republicans want to um, oversee the Department of Homeland Security and immigration enforcement, but so do Democrats, right? Democrats in the Senate may also want to look at human rights abuses by the Border Patrol or something like that. And so they're... Um, we may we may see Congress um, paying more attention to the executive branch um, and maybe 
we we'll have to see if they can if they can uh, agree on any major legislation. I'm I'm a little skeptical that there's a lot left on the table after what they were able to pass in the first two years, um, and it it really does depend on the whether the House majority actually has any governing policy priorities that they want to try to pass that that are reasonable, right? That the Democrats in the Senate and that Joe Biden would actually agree to, um, or whether they more prefer to pass bills that tell the country how the Republicans are different from Democrats, which is what the House majority has done in the last decade or so, right? Passing many repeals of Obamacare just to say we're against Obamacare. Um, and those are more symbolic actions than sort of significant attempts at legislation. So it, it depends on the new House majority. So the Democratic um, congressional caucuses um, currently look uh, more more unified uh, and uh, the Yet there has been a lot of changes in the Democratic voting coalition, um, some of which are reflected in their uh, representatives. It's um, obviously quite a bit more racially diverse, more educated, uh, younger. Uh, and we do have a transition, finally, uh, in the House leadership on the Democratic side um, that, that might uh, reflect those changes. So uh, how should we be, be thinking about changes in the Democratic coalition and the extent to which uh, those voting changes are reflected in Democratic leadership in Congress? Um, I, I see the Democratic coalition as, you know, not not in lockstep with each other, but I think um, polarization and active coalition building um, and opposition to Donald Trump really just helped Democrats identify who their allies are. Um, and so, you you know, people sort of make fun of the, 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 the you know, the yard signs that are like in this house, we believe. Um, but that's a list of things that Democrats are telling themselves and each other that this, this is what we believe, right? We believe in the environment. We believe in Black Lives Matter. We believe in uh, LGBTQ rights. We believe in um, uh, you know, labor rights, right? To, for, peop- for, them, for the whole party to be able to tell themselves this is, this is our priority list um, indicates that the coali- I think the coalition is as strong as I've seen it in my lifetime um, in terms of being able to identify like who's on our team. Um, and I think Trump accelerated that, that process. Um, and I think elements of the democratic party are, are having, are, are becoming strengthened right now. Like organized labor is having a moment. Um, African-Americans have, uh, reached some significant levels of representation at the top of the party, the vice president, the minority leader, Hakeem Jeffries, um, the new mayor of Los Angeles, Supreme court justice, Ketanji Brown Jackson, um, that doesn't mean that they've that, that, uh, that African Americans are seeing that their policy priorities are being uh, enacted by Congress. Um, voting rights, criminal justice reform did not pass Congress last time, um, but they definitely are a prominent, uh, maybe as prominent a, a, a part of the the face of the Democratic Party as they should be, given their their loyalty to the party. Um, and the new congressional leadership does reflect that, right? You've got a, a black man, Hakeem Jeffries, Catherine Clark, a, a woman, Pete Aguilar, Aguilar uh, who's Latino. Um, the Democratic Party understands itself as a diverse coalition and wants to show itself to be a diverse coalition. Um, and that, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're all going to agree about everything, right? There is this idea a lot that we, there's the socialist, um, democratic socialist faction of the democratic party. Um, and they are not necessarily always going to agree with the moderates. Um, and, and there definitely are still a lot of moderates in the democratic party, but I think what we saw in the last 
session was that, you know, from Joe Manchin to Alexandria, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, they were able to agree on quite a lot, right? Those, they got some major priorities passed. Um, whether the party stays united um, kind of depends on the way the Republicans behave. It kind of depends on um, how the suburb, you know, how important are the suburbs and, and do uh, sort of the suburban white mom vote? Is that, does that become um, an increasing, like do, do Republicans, McCain Republicans kind of move into the Democratic Party and does that kind of pull the Democratic Party to the right and how does that make the left feel? There's all those questions that we just don't know the answer to. Um, but I would say right now they're kind of at a high point for unity and I would expect that they'd continue to support Biden, maybe not like enthusiastically, <laughs> um, but uh, to the degree that he reads the party really well and and prioritizes what the rest of the party wants, there's no real reason to um, for them to abandon him. And then we have the House Republicans, at least, uh, if not the Republican Party as a whole, uh, which still seems uh, to be having a lot of internal fights. Um, this is often attributed uh, to Donald Trump, uh, but the, the Freedom Caucus uh, and certainly the Tea Party um, predate uh, Trump, uh, and many of these um, folks were, were involved in this kind of activity uh, in the Obama administration uh, as well. So in some sense, this is kind of a long-running a series of feuds uh, in the in the Republican Party, and and for now Trump is on the establishment side of that uh, dispute. So, uh, how should we kind of judge, uh, you know, the current uh, Republican coalition, um, and you know the extent to which it was it was changed uh, or just kind of accelerated uh, by Trump? Um, so the Republican Party's always had a conservative faction, right? There's there's been a, an identifiable conservative faction, or not always, but you know, for decades, has had an identifiable conservative faction, in a way that the Democrats don't have that, haven't always had exactly that kind of factionalism, um, and the Republicans have. What tr it, it's a great question um, because there is a lot of overlap between the people that would have called themselves Tea Partiers and the people that would have called themselves Gingrich Republicans and the people who would call themselves Trump Republicans. Um, but I would say that the that there's a what we're what we've seen you know in the House leadership fight in 2023 is is there that there there really is a a, a difference between old line conservatives like you know McCarthy and Scalise and and the the Lauren Boberts and Paul Gosars of the party at the moment um I think that the new the 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 Trump um wing of the party is um you know they're more committed to um conservative identity issues like being very pro-gun um and and being committed to issues that Trump um, champions, like especially election denialism. Um, and I think one of the the big question for the next two years or the next you know decade is um, how does the Republican Party manage its factions? Um, and you know how does it how does it set priorities? Um, and you know what role does it give? does it does it say, does it give into the demands of, um, you know, the Trumpist wing of the party to have a prominent place? Does it try to marginalize them? That these are, these are questions that we kind of can't know the answer to because they're choices that 
you know, the individuals who are in leadership are going to have to make. Um, so I don't, I don't know that we know. And that's, I think that's the big question. I think that's a big thing to watch over the next couple of years. So this will all be taking place in the context of the, the presidential election, uh, which we were given a one week uh, break and, and started uh, immediately um, with uh, Donald Trump's announcement uh, that they barely held him off from announcing before the, the election. So on the other hand, um, it, I think it has not gone quite as well as, as people would have expected. He's sort of been out of the news. Um, he, he didn't get um, kind of a coronation of any sort. Uh, and he has at least one uh, clear competitor uh, in Ron DeSantis uh, from, from Florida so far. What signs should we look for uh, that Trump is really losing steam, uh, that DeSantis is the, uh, has emerged as the key alternative or, or not? Um, and where do we stand in kind of this role of money versus endorsements versus media coverage versus polling in thinking about uh, internal party coalition fights? Well, thinking about presidential nominations, right, those are the variables that we look at. Um, you know, one of the things that one, one pattern that has been pretty robustly observed since uh, the 1980s, at least, uh, is that um, the candidate that, that you very often um, the party kind of rallies around a presidential candidate and they do it before ever before the primaries have, have really even gotten started. Um, and and the person who is able to raise the most money and um, get the most endorsements from party insiders um, tends to also be the person who gets the most positive media coverage and tends to be the person who also leads in the polls. And that person tends to go on to win the presidential nomination. Um, and that's been a pretty robust pattern. But, um, you know, the big exception to that, one of the big exceptions to that was Donald Trump, um, who only led in polling, polling and had no, virtually no support in any of the other categories. He didn't raise the most money, didn't raise much money at all, um, didn't get any endorsements at all before the primaries began. Um, although he did get the lion's share of the news media coverage. That's the, that's the other thing that he had. Um, and that's because he was a a media star and he was really good at getting attention and he was good at getting attention by saying things that were super controversial um, and that the, the mainstream news media felt like they had to pay attention to. Um, and it is, uh, you know, the rest of the Republican field has had an opportunity to look at that playbook, right? I think if you look at the way Ron DeSantis behaves, he has, he tries to use that strategy of saying things that are super controversial so that he can get media attention. Um, and so one of the questions and, and because, uh, you know, I think the other thing about the Republican party is because they have, there is a right wing media environment. Um, and a lot of it, it is true that there are that many sort of Republican voters are kind of committed <laughs> to getting their information within that media environment, including Fox news, but also including, um, right wing websites and, and, um, uh, other sort of online media sources. So I think we have to watch how conservative media treats the candidates, certainly how the mainstream media treats all the candidates and how much time and attention they give them and the way they cover them. Um, and how much, uh, how, how much the right wing media, uh, how they treat, you know, Trump versus the other candidates. Um, money may or may not, um, you know, be, be an indicator that's, that's going to tell us something, you know, the rise of candidate specific super PACs makes it, 
makes it easier for candidates to have access to money they need to run campaigns. Um, uh, endorsements, Republicans didn't have any success um, in you know rallying with their endorsements to one person in 2016. Whether they do that again is definitely something that political scientists will be watching. Um, and of course, the polls. I, I, I think we did. The political scientists, especially, did not pay as much attention to the polling in 2016 as they should have, um, as we should have. That we were um, looking at these other indicators and we're like, no, you know, the, those indicators are going to lead the way. But the fact of the matter was, um, between Trump's media coverage and his, you know, pretty good, he 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 was always riding around 30, 40 percent in the Republican primary polls in a crowded field, and that was enough. Um, and those are things that we should continue to watch. Those are the variables we have. <laughs> those are the ones that have been important to us in the past. So those are what we should look at. Um, but we, this is also a really novel situation, right? It's a former president. He was impeached twice, led an insurrection, um, and he's running again. And there's a, there may or may not be a field of other Republican candidates who choose to run against him. Um, we don't really know how any of that's going to play out. <laughs> um, but this is a, uh, this is the main the main show for 2023 is the invisible primary for the Republican nomination for 2024. So uh, part of Trump's uh, reason for running the whole time seems to be that he he feels that it's important for for his uh, legacy. He is unable to accept his defeat uh, in in 2020. Um, and we do now have a little bit more uh, hindsight to assess the Trump presidency. I know that you have written that we uh, should have. Um, although it is important to assess, you know, its impact on democracy and policy and everything like that, we also should um, assess it based on its own terms, based on what Trump was trying to achieve and whether he was able to do that. So where, where does that, that stand? How successful was the Trump presidency from a Trumpist point of view? So I think there's a, a couple of different ways to think about that. Um, from the Republican Party point of view, was Trump's presidency successful? Um, I mean, there's 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 some there's some yes and there's some no um, from the Republican Party perspective. You know, the tax bills that they wanted passed got passed and he signed them. Um, they he nominated justices to all levels of the federal judges through all levels of the federal judiciary right off of the Federalist Society's you know list of names. And so um, they are, you know, they the conservative Republican um, policy agenda advanced during the, the Trump years. Um, from Trump's own personal priorities, from what he said, from a policy perspective that he cared about, he cared about building a wall and he didn't get a wall, right? He had, he had like one thing that he talked about and he didn't get it. Um, and, you know, in another way, he also, uh, he and some very conservative um, folks in the, in the Republican establishment also tried to remake the presidency to be more, um, you know, the one way to think about it is to be a more successful unitary presidency, right? Trump didn't really care about doing things that were popular, really. Um, he didn't care if he, he didn't care about being the president for everyone. Um, he wanted to be a president very narrowly for the people that he considered to be like loyal, real Americans, which were the, the people who supported him. Um, and he wanted the presidency to be a, uh, a, a, a unitary and effective tool to uh, be able to create policy. 
Um, and there were there were several attempts to really extend that uh, that more autocratic presidency, um, including by uh, repealing most civil service protections for the bureaucracy or for for many le- many more levels of the bureaucracy um, to make it more possible for presidents to uh, enact uh, to change the way that laws are enforced uh, in ways that run up against maybe just enacting laws unilaterally. Um, and they, that was not, that was that executive order that he issued about that would, it was issued very late. There was pushback and it was not, um, and Biden overturned it immediately. Um, and so, you know, that, that full achievement of a more authoritarian type of presidency also was kind of a failure. Um, that doesn't mean that it's gone away as a possibility for, for, uh, presidents in his mold. Um, but I would, I would say from Trump, from what Trump wanted to achieve, um, it was uh, he was not he was not successful, and, and in addition to being, um, you know, impeached twice. Uh, but from the Republican Party's perspective, they were able to get what they wanted for the most part from his administration. Um, although they may be reaping some consequences of of uh, the unpopularity of of his style of politics. So the Democratic Party has also had some contentious uh, presidential uh, races um, uh, lately. Um, and even though it would normally rallying behind uh, the president who had just done better than expected in a midterm is still kind of open um, for people not being satisfied uh, with with Biden, maybe primarily because of his age, but maybe for other reasons as well. Um, in 2024, uh, it looks like Biden's running again. And one of the things, one of the signals is that the Democrats are changing their, their primary process um, uh, for the first time in a while, um, really downgrading Iowa and New Hampshire. But the, the surprise was to upgrade South Carolina, at least for now. So that certainly looks like a, a pro-Biden <laughs> move. Um, but but I guess it, it does signal some potential change. So so how much should we expect um, that that process to change um, going forward? And how much does it matter? You know, if, if we've traditionally said most of this occurs before people start voting. Um, does that mean that this this kind of early state sequence doesn't matter as much as people think? Mostly, uh, as you say, you know, mostly the you know the field is is set by all those other variables that we talked about. Um, but that doesn't mean that the early states don't matter, right? And I think the fact that Biden wants to make South Carolina the first state um, points to the fact that his victory in South Carolina was super important for him consolidating the Democratic Party behind him in, in 2020, uh, especially because the, the sort of other person who was standing um, was Bernie Sanders and the Democrats were not willing to, you know, um, nominate Bernie Sanders against Donald Trump in 2020. Um, <clears throat> I think in terms of the primary contests, the the issues with, with Iowa and New Hampshire are deeper than just Biden's preferences. Um, the party is pulled toward representativeness and inclusion um, by its diverse coalition. And Iowa and New Hampshire are not diverse. Um, and they, and uh, you know, caucuses have a certain um, small D democratic appeal, but they're also really hard for people to get to and it re- they result in low turnout. And I think, I think the Democratic Party, given its emphasis on inclusion and voting rights and access to voting, um, those caucus states are, are were on the way out anyway. Iowa, Iowa's caucuses were all were going to be a, a mark against it even before they couldn't count the votes in 2020. Um, 
And you know, both Iowa and New Hampshire are more rural than the Democratic Party and more um, more white than the Democratic Party. And so it it doesn't it doesn't surprise me at all to see changes moving toward, um, you know, to the degree that that the order of the states matters and the early states matter. Um, Democrats want the voices that are heard in those early states to be representative of the party and the country. Um, and that's, that's a priority for the party. And so I could, I, I think that that those changes are probably happening no matter what Biden wants. Um, uh, although he's certainly helping to accelerate those changes. Uh, and then, you know, whether the Republicans follow suit is a different question, right? Do they want to put Michigan first? It's also a swing state. Um, you know, those are that, that'll be a question for, and, and do they even want to have open primary processes at all um, is a question that Republicans are going to have to figure out also as they as they look toward 2024. So you and others have shown that uh, these um, coordination dynamics uh, within the parties uh, apply uh, at least as much in congressional uh, elections. Um, and historically, um, parties have rallied around their their incumbents uh, who have rarely lost and um even in open primary races, have typically found a, a clear uh, party uh, favorite. Um, to what extent is that is that changing? Are we just focused on a few high-profile examples where incumbents either lost or um, the, there did seem to be a very open debate between um, the establishment and the in, insurgents? Um, and, and what role is kind of uh, Trump playing in this? In the last election, it did seem that at least among the Senate candidates, uh, even if the party coordinated support, it was often kind of in response uh, to Trump's uh, selection. Um, you know, so so I guess how, how much are those traditional dynamics of, of party um, coordination still applying in congressional races? Well, I think the dynamics still apply, right? Primaries are low information elections. And so the signals that, and, and the people who are more likely to vote in primaries are going to be more committed partisans. And so, you know, those folks are looking for signals about who to support because everybody's in the same party, has nominally the same issue positions. And so, you know, how to distinguish among those candidates, any, any clear signals from elites of various kinds um, can help voters make decisions in primaries. Um, and we have seen in the past that um, when that, especially in in races that the party really wants to win, they can rally around a primary candidate and that can provide a really important signal to voters. Um, and, you know, one thing that has been a little bit more ambiguous is whose voice count, who's, a, who's an elite, right? Who's a party elite? Um, and that may be subject to local dynamics. It may be subject to shifts in um, a party coalition. Uh, and so the emergence of Donald Trump as the president of the United States um, would cert and, and you know, to the degree that he's gonna reach down and take a, take a position in a low level secretary of state race that nobody else is particularly following or a state legislative race, um, you know, we, would, we would expect that to be a clear signal to um, voters who, are, who might be looking for some, in, some kind of information. Um, on the other hand, a lot of the folks that he, some of the prominent folks that he that he supported in the last uh, cycle, lost the general election because they were taking positions about election integrity and that kind of thing that were very out of step with the mainstream. Um, and so, 
you know, I would say that that the those those you know who counts as a party elite is kind of fluid, um, and there's no question that however you define it, a former president of the United States is going to count as a party elite, whether he's a decisive factor in primaries or not isn't is an is an evolving question, right? Um, and it may vary from place to place, and it may vary by how you know what whether there's any other signals in that race, or are there is there any is there a Repub- is a Trump candidate and a somebody else candidate, the governor get backing someone different. Um, and so the, I would, that's the way to think through those dynamics. Um, and, you know, Trump's popularity over time may have something, you know, if he becomes the, the Republican nominee or becomes the president again, we would, we would expect that he should probably be someone that Republican voters support and are listening to. Um, but to the degree that he gets maybe marginalized or pushed out or um, ceases to be uh, you know, the, the Republican nominee isn't, he doesn't win the Republican nomination, then I think we would expect that to, his influence in party primaries to, you know, um, probably tail off a little bit. Um, so I guess, I guess that's the way I would think about that. So you were uh, also host of a, or co-host of a, a podcast uh, where you uh, discussed uh, current events uh, with a political science lens called A Few Reasonable Words uh, that isn't uh, with us anymore. Um, but uh, I know that it was it was part of the mission of, of that to be part of this um, kind of impact of, of political science in the public conversation about uh, current events, uh, obviously, that, that I share. Um, but we are kind of at a moment where the monkey cage is leaving the, the Washington Post. Uh, Twitter is having whatever Twitter is having under Elon Musk and is losing some political scientists. Um, so I guess where should we assess? Uh, on the other hand, political science does seem to be regularly referenced uh, in, in news articles um, and, and by some practitioners compared to what it was um, when we were in graduate school together. So uh, what, what is the current state of um, the, kind of the role of political science in public discourse and, and what's the kind of pro case for uh, what influence we've had? Um, well, it's a, it's a good question what kind of influence we've had. Um, I don't know that I can necessarily assess that aside from, from, say, from noting that um, there are more prominent journalists that I think more regularly are, or maybe more aware that political scientists might have something interesting to tell them. Um, and, and, and that's a good thing because I am a partisan of political science. I think that it does have a, it, it does help us understand the world. Um, it, you know, political scientists, um, think systematically about how politics works. Um, and it lets us, uh, you know, that lens lets us, you know, take all of the events that happen every day and, and put them into classes and say, well, this is an example of another kind of, of a, sim- a group of other similar events. And this is, this is what we know about how those events play out. And it lets us, um, you know, sort out, I think a little bit, things that are really important from things that may be just like, yeah, this is, this is just how things work. This is routine. Um, and I think that, that, uh, that, pri- that, that ability to prioritize is sometimes lost by journalists um, who, have a different obligation to talk about what's new every day. Um, and what's new may not be what's important. <laughs> it may not be, um, and it, it, you know, the, the, uh, the event that's taking place may be an example of something that they're not even thinking of. So I think political scientists have a lot to talk about, especially as democracy is challenged. Um, you know, we've, we've looked at how democracy works in the world, other places in the world, in the past, in the United States, 
Um, and we've looked at those patterns and, and we, I think we've got a lot to offer. And I hope, you know, even with the, um, if folks are, if, if there are some prominent, um, places where those interactions were taking place, I hope we can find other ways to, um, do public facing work and, and have public facing conversations, because I think that that's an important contribution of our scholarship. Is there a negative uh, case? I know that one of the poster childs uh, for kind of our influence not being good uh, was the the party decides uh, narrative around uh, the the twenty sixteen presidential election um, that that we've uh, talked about, um, and you you sort of mentioned as a potential potential error in our our um, thinking. Um, but the the I guess the idea there was maybe that we were too quick to assume that you know the regularities from the last few decades were kind of appropriate a kind of a law-like uh, status or to kind of generalize from a, a smaller number uh, of cases. So I guess what, what, what should we be afraid of in kind of translating our, our work to these public conversations or, or what blind spots do we have? Um, well, we can only, you know, we, we look at the past, right? I mean, we're not, we're not historians, but when we're trying to, when we try to understand politics, we can't look, we can only look at what, what has happened in the past. Um, and so when new developments occur, we may not, we may be as blindsided as anybody else by, by things that are genuinely new in the political world. Um, and I think we should, I, I think after the, that example of 2016, but also, um, you know, as we, as, as we look at the fragility of American democracy, um, in the, in the current era, in the Trump era, um, and, and how that kind of differs with the very stable patterns that emerged um, and, and sort of described textbook American democracy from at least since the Voting Rights Act. Um, I, I, think we, I think we should be a little bit more circumspect and a little bit more humble about how we talk about events that haven't happened yet. Um, and I, I, I think political scientists generally have uh, have taken that to heart. Um, uh, I certainly have. <laughs> you know, try to be more um, more willing to say we don't know, um, and more willing to uh, and and maybe a little bit less willing to rely on the past to tell us about the future. Uh, it's all we have, um, and our systematic study of it is better than a lot of people's hunches. Um, and I think I still think it, we've got a lot to offer, um, but that doesn't mean it's a crystal ball, and we shouldn't treat it as such. Anything else we didn't get to that you wanted to include or anything you want to tout about what you're doing next? Well, um, I'm, again, the co-editor of Making of the Presidential Candidates with Jonathan Bernstein. And so we've got an edited volume about the presidential nomination process uh, with a bunch of great contributors that's hopefully coming out later this year with Roman and Littlefield. One of these days, my book about the evolution of presidential war powers will also be available. But that, <laughs> that's still, still a little bit more in the, the work in progress stage. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, here are the episodes you should check out next, all linked on our website. The Future of the Biden Agenda in Congress. Congressional Primaries, How the Parties Fight Insurgents. Are Divided Governments the Cause of Delays and Shutdowns? Compromise Still Works in Congress and with Voters. And Are the Democratic or Republican Parties Becoming More Similar or Different? Thanks to Casey Dominguez for joining me, and please listen in next time.